Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nashville, August 1920. 35 states have ratified the 19th Amendment. 12 have rejected or refused to vote. One last state is needed. It all comes down to Tennessee. The moment of truth for the suffragists after a seven-decade crusade. The opposing forces include politicians with careers at stake, liquor companies, railroad magnets, and racists who don't want black women voting. And then there are the antis, women who oppose their own enfranchisement, fearing suffrage will bring about the moral collapse of the nation. They all converge in a boiling hot summer for a face-off replete with dirty tricks, betrayals, and bribes, bigotry, Jack Daniels, and the Bible. Following a handful of remarkable women who led their respective forces into battle, along with appearances by Woodrow Wilson, Warren Harding, Frederick Douglass, and Eleanor Roosevelt, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote, is a book by Elaine Weiss. It's an inspiring story of activists winning their own freedom in one of the last campaigns forged in the shadow of the Civil War and the beginning of the great 20th century battles for civil rights. We're going to revisit our conversation from 2018 with Elaine Weiss, who is an award-winning journalist and writer whose work has appeared in The Atlantic, Harper's, New York Times, Christian Science Monitor, as well as reports and documentaries for National Public Radio and Voice of America. Uh, She's a McDowell Colony Fellow and Pushcart Prize Editor's Choice Honoree, and she's also the author of Fruits of Victory, the Women's Land Army in the Great War. She lives in Baltimore, and we talked to her in uh, 2018. So Nashville, summer of 1920, 35 states have ratified the 19th Amendment, 12 have rejected or refused to vote. It comes down to Tennessee. If Tennessee ratifies it, it's ratified. If they don't, then, uh, then the 19th Amendment might be dead. Yeah, it really is that stark. Uh, this becomes the last best hope for the suffragists because um, the other southern states, for the most part, have rejected the amendment. There are two northern states uh, where the governors are refusing to call uh, a uh, a special session of their legislature to consider it. They're under all kinds of political pressures. Um, there's one southern state, uh, Florida, which is also refusing. Um, so it really is coming down to Tennessee. And if not, uh, there are movements afoot to uh, recall some of the ratifications. There's a strong anti-suffrage lobby, which is working to undermine what has already been uh, accomplished. And so the suffragists realize that if they lose in Tennessee, um, it not only will stop any momentum they have, but it really may be spell the end uh, for the near future of the amendment. And the 1920 presidential election is coming up, and it's a, a very important election where the um, uh, the direction of the uh, country is going to be decided, and women need to have a, a voice. And so they realize this is the Alamo, this is the last stand, but so do the anti-suffragists. And so that's what sets up this incredible uh, confrontation in Tennessee. It's not just uh, that it's uh, just another ratification. It may be the last, uh, or it may not. And and everyone knows the stakes, and the stakes are extremely high. And the, the forces that gather there uh, are very well aware that uh, if either side loses, that's the end for them. Uh, now, the suffragists probably would have kept on going, um, and perhaps been able to make some headway. But they can see that the pendulum of public opinion and the, the, the tenor of uh, the nation is turning more conservative. And that, that does happen. 
Uh, so they're afraid if they don't get it now, it's just not going to happen in, in perhaps in their lifetimes. So it's a very crucial time, and it becomes uh, so dramatic because the stakes are so high. They're throwing everything at it. They're gonna they're, they pull out all the stops, and so do the anti-suffragists. So there's uh, you know fistfights and bribery and drunkenness and um, uh, betrayal uh, and and singular acts of courage, and that makes for a great a great tale and i think that's what i try to tell in the book yeah it's a it's a you know reads like a reads like a novel right it's it's history uh, i want to get into have you tell me about some of the, the leaders of uh, the various movements but before i do that um i think we forget the 1920s and you have pointed this out there's a lot of parallels in the 1920s to today including the fact that the campaign slogan for the leading candidate for president was america first Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, it was. Um, yes, there are parallels. There's parallels in what worries the nation. And, and I think I was struck by this. In 1920, there's a lot of concern about immigration. Immigration has uh, transformed America. Um, there's been a great wave of immigrants, which is, of course, what will make America great in the, in the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, and sometimes we forget that, but there was anxiety about all these uh, foreign um, uh, immigrants coming in and making a home here. And it strengthened us, but it frightened us. So you have immigration being debated. You have uh, labor insecurity. Industries are afraid of automation. We're still talking about that. And there's um, a, a question of where organized labor comes in. That's being uh, causing anxiety. There's, of course, racial tensions. There are race riots throughout the country in starting in 1917, uh, continuing right up to the minute in 1920, uh, because there are there are racial tensions going on. There's economic insecurities. Uh, there's all these um, ideas that we're we're grappling with now that were also being um, discussed in 1920, including the role of America in the world. Just come out of uh, what they were called then the Great War, we call it World War One. And what is America's role? Is it to be a leader of the free world? Um, or is it to, to withdraw and become a nationalist uh, nation that, that doesn't isn't really involved in world affairs. And, and that's a real a decision point uh, being debated in, in the 1920 election. And Warren Harding, uh, the Republican candidate, is saying America first and does not want us to join the League of Nations. And the Democratic candidate, James Cox of Ohio, is saying, no, we must join, we must be a leader in the free world. And um, and that's that's a big part of the debate, and it and it gets uh, has an impact on what's going on in Tennessee, um, because this is going to expand the electorate. Uh, it's going to double the electorate, and that's a big unpredictable vote. And so the politicians are worried about it. Um, there are corporations that are worried about it because they feel their business interests are at stake. So another theme that comes through that we're dealing with now is uh, corporate influence in politics and dark money flowing into campaigns. That's something that's a big element of what's ha what my book is about. And here you see we're talking about it and arguing about it today. So 
it, it was both um, amazing to me and uh, sobering to, to realize that these issues that are so prominent in 1920 and, and make the action of, of the book so compelling are not resolved. We're still debating them. I want to talk about the arguments on, on either side, maybe starting with the anti-side, because I think it's maybe less understand, under, understood, less understandable today. It's a fait accompli that uh, the women have the vote. And uh, I think most today would agree that, uh, you know, should be, you know, democracy expanded, <laughs> hopefully. When, one of the, I, I was interested, maybe I'll ask you this, in the reading guide for the book, there was a provocative question. If the vote were held today, ratification vote, and if only men uh, had the had the vote on whether or not to allow the Nineteenth Amendment, would it pass? I thought that was an interesting uh, question. Yes, yes, um, I think it is, and I think it's thought provoking, considering the kind of discourse we've had in the last eighteen months. Um, and remember, in this in this whole suffrage movement, it's only men who are able to decide whether women are entitled to full citizenship, to equal rights. It's only men who can decide either at the state level in referenda um, on women's suffrage or in the state legislatures or in Congress, and then back to the state legislatures for ratification. It's only men who are deciding. And um, so we have to think if we were back in that situation and asking men to basically dilute their political power by half, if you want to be really, you know, uh, blunt about what's, what they're being asked to do, uh, if they believe that women are their equals as citizens and as people, um, what would happen now? Consider what is, you know, what we see in our headlines, in our, on our radios, on our, um, Twitter feeds, and, and think about that. And I, I think that's a, a kind of interesting and unnerving question, uh, but something we should grapple with, because we still are not sure, I don't believe, uh, about we're not secure about our democracy. Uh, what does it mean to be a democratic republic if we put barriers before people, our citizens, can vote, and whether that's women or black people or Hispanic people or immigrants, what does it mean if we do not encourage everyone to vote? And I think that's a question we should still be grappling with. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Elaine Weiss. Her book is The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. We'll have more following this. Support for Project Resilience Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and USU Center for Persons with Disabilities, working to create healthy, inclusive communities through innovative research, service, technical assistance, and education. Information at cpd.usu.edu. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR. This week in This American Life, 
What would be wrong with one channel that showed nothing but puppies acting the natural comedians and cuties that they are all day, every day? After 25 years as a businessman, one man starts from scratch to create a cable network with this theme song. Puppies, 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 puppies. The cutest, fuzziest radio story on earth this week. Saturday morning at 10 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Nashville, August 1920. 35 states have ratified the 19th Amendment. 12 have rejected or refused to vote. One last state is needed. It all comes down to Tennessee. This is the moment of truth for the suffragists after a seven-decade crusade. Elaine Weiss tells this exciting true life story in the Woman's Hour, the great fight to win the vote. And we're revisiting today our conversation with Elaine Weiss from 2018. I want to talk about some of the arguments against the 19th Amendment. I'm looking at, uh, this is, I think, the illustration that most stood out to me in the whole book. Um, it's a, I don't know, it's a, it's a flyer, a broadside, America when feminized, it says. <laughs> and it yes. shows a rooster and a hen. The rooster has to, you know, he's, he, the, the hen is leaving, I guess, to go vote, and the, the rooster has to take care of the, the eggs. I want to read uh, just a, a paragraph from this. Woman's suffrage denatures both men and women. It masculinizes women, feminizes men. The history of ancient civilization has proved proven that a weakening of the man, man the power of nations has uh, been but a pre-runner of decadence in civilization. Then they quote an expert, Dr. William J. Hickson, Chicago University. <laughs> the effect of social revolution on American character will be to make sissies of American men process already well underway, says Dr. Hickson. Um, and then there's the, the, the kicker line there. I'm not sure if you read that. Um, a vote for the federal amendment is a vote for organized female nagging forever. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I think I think we see the theme of um, uh, insecurity <laughs> um, being expressed there. But uh, what you have to understand is this broadside was actually published by women. It was published by women who opposed suffrage, uh, which which gives it a whole nother cast um, because they are saying that um, it will destroy the American home and destroy the American society if women are given the right to vote. They really fear that this is a precursor to women leaving their families, abandoning them, you know, go out into the public sphere. Maybe they'll want to work outside the home. That's a fear. Uh, maybe they're going to feel they should have an equal partnership in their marriage. That's a fear. That's what you see being expressed there. Uh, you know, the 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 idea that the the rooster may have to sit on the on the eggs, may have to uh, take care of children. And so all these um, elements of uh, our domestic and social life that we're, we're still grappling with. You know, I have a family. I, I know these things aren't resolved. But um, there's a real fear among those opposed to suffrage that this is uh, an unnatural upending of both social mores and home life, that this is not just a political decision. This is going to affect the American home. It's going to destabilize, uh, you know, man in his castle if women are giving this vote. And there are other um, broadsides that the, that the anti-suffragists 
publish that show a pair of pants and say, who's going to wear these in your family once women get to vote? Um, so you you do see these themes, and again, I, I would venture to say these, these have not been resolved in even our modern society, um, but you see them expressed in these ways that kind of take your breath away um, by the anti-suffragists. And so these are both men and women who feel that this is, will cause uh, a cultural and social upheaval. Uh, then there are religious conservatives, both men and women, who believe this is goes against God's plan, that God made Adam to dominate Eve, and that's her proper role, to be subservient. And anything else is, uh, uh, you know, not, is, it goes against biblical th- uh, teachings. That's used as, an ex- as a rationale against uh, suffrage. And then you have... Um, other arguments and other actors who are um, coming in, either political or, or corporate interests, uh, who are also attacking uh, suffrage. But for the women anti-suffragists, it's mostly either a religious or a ideological opposition to women becoming the political equals of men. And they see this as a dangerous, um, slippery slope. Um, it's interesting to see, see, I remember some of these same arguments in the 1970s, Equal Rights Amendment, which, uh, Absolutely. which, which did Absolutely. fail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It did fail. And one of the interesting things is you will meet in, this, in, in the Woman's Hour several of the characters who then, just three years later, uh, draft and inter- uh, get introduced into Congress the Equal Rights Amendment. It is formulated by Alice Paul and Sue Shelton White, who, who plays a, a strong, uh, is a strong character in this book, and they say, well, once we have the vote, that's the first thing. Now we need equal rights, and we need it in uh, political realms and social realms. And they introduce, they draft, and have introduced into the Congress in 1923 the Equal Rights Amendment, and it has been now 95 years, and it has not been passed. It yeah. was passed by Congress. It was not ratified. So we see that it's possible for something to be in limbo for a long, long time. Uh, and I agree. I remember those arguments, too, and arguments about how this was, uh, you know, women's liberation, which was the way it was expressed in the 1970s, was going to destroy the American home. So, yeah, these arguments have have legs, so to speak. And we see, you know, we, I think we see echoes of it today. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's both frightening and uh, makes us want to understand where this comes from. And I think the Women's Hour helps us understand where this comes from. Yes. Because there is a continuum in this, in this argument. Um, but I don't want your listeners to think this is a kind of dry political tome, uh, because it really isn't. And I didn't write it like that. Uh, it's, it's really kind of a, a political thriller, as I like to call it. It's, it's fast-paced, and it um, has these great, colorful characters, kind of larger-than-life characters, both women and men, uh, who are battling it out uh, for the sake of justice. So it's, it's this very compelling front story of what happens in Tennessee, but through that you see all these themes of American history coursing through it. Yeah, I want to get into some of the colorful characters, and there are many in this book. Uh, one more... 
maybe overarching theme. You write in your introduction, as this is an American story, it is inevitably about race, which I think is a good line. Um, the the anti-suffragist movement was was using states' rights, right? We we can't we we can't allow federal government or the Constitution to abrogate the state's right to decide who gets to vote. And behind that, I suppose, uh, we don't want black women to vote. Precisely. That, that is absolutely uh, the, the rationale of, of many of the anti-suffragists, especially in the South and especially in this last battle in a southern state. Uh, it's not subtle. Uh, they, they say it blatantly that uh, this is a threat having women vote, which would include black women, ability to vote, uh, has the potential to um, uh, destroy white supremacy. And it's kind of shocking to see that said right out loud. Um, But then you realize that that same argument will be used throughout the 20th century. It'll be used again to fight uh, federal mandates for voting rights. It'll be used to fight integration uh, and that states' rights argument is being used today um, uh, to restrict voting in in some states. Uh, it's being used um, continuously. And so that's when I say race is a, a sort of motif that runs through all of American history. Uh, it, it, it becomes very apparent that this fight about women's suffrage, you don't think of it in racial terms, but it's very much a racial issue. Um, and one of the other parts of the the argument is that when it comes down to it, there are white suffragists, not all, but some who are willing to barter away the rights of black women to vote. And one of the heartbreaking uh, things that I realize uh, after the vote is won is that for the most part, white suffragists satisfied they have the vote are not going to fight for their black sisters who have fought with them to demand the vote, and then are left behind as, especially in the southern states, they're disenfranchised just as the black men have been. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's something that's very uh, cautionary when we realize in their moment of victory, um, the suffragists are not going to fight for the next 50 years uh, to help their black sisters uh, gain equality. Uh, and again, it's a lesson for us. It's a cautionary tale. Um, you have to bring everybody in. It's not a democracy if you don't. I want to have you tell me about uh, some of the fascinating uh, figures. Maybe uh, if you'd start with uh, Carrie Cat. Yeah, so I try to tell the story through the, the eyes of three of the major protagonists. And one is the woman who's the head of the uh, largest national American Women's Suffrage Association. It claims two million members. Her name is Carrie Chapman Cat. And she's a fascinating character. She uh, grows up as a farm girl in Iowa and experiences some uh, the idea that she is not going to be able to vote and her mother is not able to vote. And she begins to question it as a young girl and says, well, this doesn't seem right. And she devotes her life to changing that. And she becomes a protege of Susan B. Anthony, who grooms her for leadership very carefully. And that's one of the interesting things about how this movement carefully cultivates the next generation of leaders. I think that's something we've lost, that very deliberate and careful cultivation of a next generation. And um, 
and so she takes on the reins of the suffrage movement when Susan B. Anthony leads. And even though she comes in and out of the official presidency, she really is seen as both the national leader and an international leader. She's head of the International Women's Suffrage Association. And that reminds us that this is not just happening in America. It's happening around the world at that time. And some some countries have given the vote to women by 1920. There's something like 26 nations ahead of us who have uh, decided to give their women the right to vote. And um, so Carrie Cat is, uh, she's called the chief. She's a, a master tactician and strategist and politician. She's probably the most, one of the most famous women in America in 1920. She's on the, you know, the covers of magazines and, and newspapers. And she is summoned to lead the battle in Nashville. And she comes to Nashville kind of reluctantly. She's bothered by the heat. She's kept in what's essentially house arrest in the hotel because they feel that she'll be too controversial to be seen on the streets of of Nashville. Uh, This Yankee woman coming to leave the suffragists, so they keep her in her room. Um, And then there's another young woman who comes to Nashville to lead her wing of the suffrage movement, which is uh, the Alice Paul National Women's Party. This is the more radical, I don't call it militant because they really were not militant, but they were radical and they were impatient. They were the younger generation. They're saying, we've waited much too long for this. We've been too polite. Uh, We're not willing to beg for the vote anymore. We're going to demand it. And so they start off on these major marches through Washington, marches through the streets of of cities all over the nation. They picket the White House, which had never been done before by anybody. They burn President Wilson in effigy outside the gates of the White House. They go to prison. And Sue White does go to prison. She goes to prison for her civil disobedience, uh, for protesting uh, the lack of her civil rights. Uh, She has to serve her time. And then she is summoned to Nashville also uh, and arrives to lead this younger, more radical faction. Um, And she has to confront uh, her mentors, the the older women who have have kind of brought her up in the suffrage movement. And it's a very emotional and complex psychological moment for her. She's testing herself as a leader, and she's also having to, to, uh, you see the split in the movement, which happens in many social and political movements, and and suffragists are split, and they're working separately towards the same goal. And so you see that embodied in these women. It's not just an abstract concept. These women are having to to, uh, make separate paths, and they have separate headquarters. And then um, the third woman who who arrives on that same night in Nashville uh, to take command is a woman named Josephine Pearson, who is a very uh, well-educated college administrator um, from um, the mountains of, of southern Tennessee, and she comes to fight against suffrage. She's head of the Tennessee anti-suffrage women, and um, she believes this is going to be the downfall of America if she is, uh, if if the amendment is ratified, and so she is there to lead the anti-suffragists, and they all arrive in Nashville on the same night, and they stay at the same hotel. Uh, and you you sort of see the all the strains and strands of this argument and this this crusade uh, crystallizing as these women arrive in Nashville, and then they're going to be joined by uh, several thousand other people who who 
come in to uh, to witness and to participate in this grand uh, finale, this climax of this uh, seven-decade movement. The, the, it's pressure cooker, right? Uh, hot summer pressure cooker, because I think everybody knows on all sides, this is it. Absolutely. It's like the Alamo. You know, they really do know it. And that sense of it being the last stand both animates them and frightens everyone. And it means they pull out all the stops. And they are going to do things that perhaps are not wise, <laughs> uh, but they're going, they, they know this is it. And the anxiety of the suffragists go through as, frankly, they see what they thought was possible, uh, that possibility erode as they see the votes uh, melting away under the pressure of bribery and uh, political pressure and uh, all kinds of other influences that are making those legislators who said, oh, sure, I'll vote for ratification, suddenly have second thoughts. And so during the course of the six weeks, you see them betrayed. You see them um, having to scramble to, to find a new strategy. Uh, you see them uh, championed by unlikely uh, men, and you see, so there's this uh, very emotional roller coaster that I try to take the reader on, which um, mirrors the roller coaster that the suffragists are on, and the anti-suffragists, because for them it's it's possibly the end too. So it's it's very emotional. It's very um, it's political theater because you have all these actors. You have male politicians. You have male um, journalists and newspaper publishers who are part of this fight. Um, you have the presidential candidates. You have their political parties. You have the president in the White House who is an invalid and uh, is trying to to have this last modicum of power and is trying to protect his own legacy um, you have all these different forces who you would think have nothing to do with women's suffrage, but they have everything to do with it. And that's what makes it such a compelling and complex story. And as you say, it's a pressure cooker. Uh, they're, they're under the pressure of intense heat. There's no air conditioning. They're also under the pressure of uh, drunken legislators who are being plied with liquor by the, in, by the liquor industry in a, a room in the hotel, which is kind of a speakeasy and is called the Jack Daniels suite. And they're trying to convince legislators not to, uh, to kill the amendment because the liquor industry is afraid that uh, women will insist on enforcement of the new prohibition laws, and they're hoping it won't be enforced. Uh, so they have uh, a lot at stake in opposing the amendment also. And so you have these drunken legislators running through the corridors, singing at the top of their lungs, and the poor uh, suffragists kind of cowering uh, in their rooms. You have spies going um, to listen through the transoms, uh, what's happening. You have kidnappings. You have fistfights. <laughs> you, you have um, all the elements of uh, a great uh, political and almost comical uh, battle going on within this hotel and within the city. Uh, and it all, it's all in the service of this very important uh, Civil Rights Act. Uh, so it's, it's one of those stories that can read like a novel, and I hope it does, but it has all these levels of meaning and importance in our history that I hope will come through to, to the reader. 
and we'll uh, preserve, you know, the, some of the surprise. Uh, let me just uh, say, I don't think this, I don't think this ruins too much. This is in the publicity materials. At the last moment, a decisive vote of conscience. Uh, so we will leave that to the readers. <laughs> yes. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we're speaking with Elaine Weiss. Her book is The Woman's Hour: The Great Fight to Win the Vote. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Palmer Home Furnishings, offering a variety of sofa love sets, dining room, and bedroom furniture. Located at 1670 South Highway 165 in Providence. Information at palmerhomefurnishings.com. This week on American Roots, it could be a guilty pleasure to bring you songs and stories that cross the landscape with roots rock and soul, blues and jazz, Cajun country, gospel, Tejano. But since we are here in New Orleans, we don't feel guilty. It's just a pleasure. So join me on American Roots from PRX. Saturday evening at 8 here on Utah Public Radio. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour on healthy living, including this recipe for... Eggplant with braised chickpeas. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Sunday afternoon at 1 here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her book, The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote, Elaine Weiss tells the exciting true life story of the final push for women's suffrage in the United States. And uh, we are reaching back, uh, revisiting a conversation with Elaine Weiss from 2018. I want to read another question from uh, the... uh, the Reader's Guide. This is a, kind of some nice questions here. I guess if you've got a reading group or or just reading the book, um, you can find this at penguinrandomhouse.com. And by the way, Elaine Weiss's website, elaineweiss.com. Um, and some great stuff on both sites. So the suffragists, I'm reading from Penguin Random House, suffragists touted the benefits of allowing women to vote. They maintained that women could clean up would clean up corruption in politics, insisted upon insist upon better laws protecting families and children. Kerry Catt even believed that uh, women voters would bring about an end to war. Uh, I guess that was one, you know, there's the moral argument, there's the, the democracy argument that, hey, half our country can't vote, and if we're going to call ourselves a democracy. But this, these are interesting arguments, that women would have a moderating, a moral influence. If they could yes, vote. That, is, that is used. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, and, uh, so let me, uh, so the, the reading guide goes on, let me pose this to you. Do you think women voters have improved our political system? That's a really good question. I think the empirical evidence is not really. Um, and I think, I think Carrie Catt was very disappointed in some ways that women did not seem to, to serve this role. And, and she may have been very naive in um, thinking that women would fundamentally vote differently than men. Uh, and for a long time, they did not. There is some evidence that they do now, but not completely. And certainly the 2016 election taught us that's not completely true. So um, whether they brought greater moral uh, insights, uh, hard to say. Uh, they certainly did not clean up 
corruption in government, and they certainly have not put an end to war. So I think some of the uh, aspirations of the suffragists in, in, and some of the arguments they used uh, turned out to not be true and to be kind of faulty and perhaps um, not founded in, in, in fact. Uh, and that's, you know, that's an interesting part. Uh, they, were, they were prophesizing what women could do. They were hoping or they were assuming. That moral argument had, had a, a flip side, though. The, the anti-suffragists also used that moral argument, and they were saying that women are too delicate. Their moral sensibilities are so finely tuned that they would be corrupted and sullied if they were allowed to vote, to enter the political conversation, that this would actually endanger women because they are so morally superior. Uh, so they were using the other end of that, of that argument uh, to say women shouldn't have the vote. Uh, they really believed that it would sully women. Uh, another aspect of this is women were not allowed to serve on juries. That was seen as, as only given to, to those who had the vote. And um, so women, the, another argument against, uh, used by the anti-suffragists was, you don't want women to be able to serve on a jury and hear all these horrible things that happen uh, you know, in a criminal case. And the suffragists are saying, hell yeah, we want to be on a jury. We want to have a, a jury of our peers. When, when we stand trial, if a woman is accused of a crime, um, she never has a woman on the jury, and she cannot serve on a jury. She could not testify in court. So all these rights that we take so much for granted uh, are still up in the air, and they're being used by both sides to argue their case. Of course, as we mentioned before, uh, sometimes we forget this was a 70-year struggle in, in the United States, um, ultimately successful, and there was a price to be paid, right? Physical attack, imprisonment, force-feeding, uh, ostracization. Um, bringing it to, forward to today, what lessons do you think activists today can learn from, I guess, both sides of this, of this long struggle? Absolutely, and, and I think we forget how brave these women had to be to stand up, because at the time in the 19th century when it begins, women are not supposed to even speak in public, and they're denounced and shouted down. They're pelted with rotten eggs and vegetables. Uh, bombs are thrown into their meetings. Um, they're, they're vilified uh, as being perverts, as being too masculine, uh, they're made fun of, they, they're thrown out of their clubs, they're thrown out of their churches for, for demanding the vote. So we, we kind of take it for granted that, oh yeah, well, they just stood up and, and demanded this. Well, it took a lot of fortitude and a thick skin to do that. Um, so that's the first thing, that, that taking a stand often, um, it, it, you take risks. It's always taking a risk. Um, I think another lesson is that political change is hard and social change is slow, and both of those are necessary. Um, women's suffrage wasn't just a political issue. It was a social and a moral and a cultural debate about women's role in society. And so it had all the complications of what we call the culture wars today. And so I think 
activists can can look at the example of this seven decade crusade to win equal equal political rights for women and say, wow, it took a long time. It did not happen overnight. First, they had to change hearts and minds and blast through stereotypes and gender um, assumptions. And then they had to bring it into the legal realm. And they had to stand up and be brave, and they had to be, most of all, persistent. They had to keep going through enormous frustration and obstacles and setbacks and schisms and splits within their own movement. They had to finance it themselves. They had to convince men that they had a right to demand their own freedom. And all of those issues still face activists. And I think what I hope this will teach, the story of the Women's Hour will teach activists for whatever cause, not just women, but but all uh, groups and, and individuals who are fighting for a more just society, that um, change takes time, it takes persistence, but it also takes organization. It doesn't take just protest. You have also have to have very sophisticated and strong and resilient um, political strategy behind you. You have to be working with lots of coalitions, and you have to be working at different levels of government to lobby, to campaign, and finally to convince um, a change in law. And, uh, and that's hard, and that's complicated, but we have a nice blueprint of how it can be done. How would you, uh, or maybe just your thoughts, connecting this history to the current uh, Me Too movement? Well, it's interesting. As I've watched this unfold, I realize that for quite a few of the characters who, who I profile and are, are my characters in the book, um, they come to the idea of women, that they as women are not equal, that they, they face great barriers of inequality through a personal um, experience. And I found that interesting because you see in, this, in, in these current Me Too movements, it's a personal experience that galvanizes a political um, statement or political reaction. And so for Carrie Catt, it's, it happens when she's a young girl and it's election day and her mother, who's very uh, politically aware and astute and reads all the newspapers and debates at the family table about uh, who should be the best candidate, and she stays home as the men go off to vote. And young Carrie says, wait a second, why aren't you going to vote? And her father and the, the men folk and the hired hands who can't read themselves say, oh, no, this is much too important a decision to leave for women to, to have a voice. And that just incensed her. Um, and then as a young uh, working widow, uh, she experiences sexual harassment on her job. And she realizes women need protection. They need the vote to protect them. And this animates her and energizes her, and she dedicates her life to changing those laws. Same thing happens to Elizabeth Cady Stanton and to Susan Anthony and to um, any number. To Sue White, the younger um, suffrage worker in Tennessee, is told she wants to be a lawyer. And she's told, no, women women can't do that. They're not smart enough, and, and we don't allow them to become lawyers. And it, it bothers them on a personal level. And that then becomes uh, 
the groundwork for their political stance. And so I think that's an interesting way of looking at it, that the women who are standing up and saying, we can't be treated like this. There's something in our culture, there's something in the structure of our companies and of our um, uh, society that's allowing this, and it has to stop, and we have to figure out how to stop it, that it comes from the, the personal becomes the political. And I think that's an interesting um, uh, model for us to look at. And, and that's what I saw as I, I've seen this uh, movement unfold. There's a very poignant caption uh, in the book. Uh, it's uh, Susan B. Anthony's grave festooned with I voted stickers. The caption says, on Election Day 2016, thousands of American women visited the graves of suffrage movement leaders, honoring their legacy by pasting I voted stickers on their headstones honoring, uh, you know, the pioneers of the movement in in that way. Absolutely. I mean, it was was an extraordinary moment for me. I had no idea this was going to happen. I had just handed in the manuscript the day before, and it's election day, and I see these news flashes that thousands of women, it's not just a few, thousands and men, um, but mostly women, are are going to vote. Uh, Again, uh, many of them voting for the a woman candidate, but not all, uh, and then going to the grave sites of the suffragists who gave that vote to them. And so we know, um, you know, that it probably happened even on a broader level, but we do know that uh, women went to the cemetery in New York City where Carrie Catt and Elizabeth Cady Stanton are buried. They went to Alice Paul's gravesite in New Jersey, in Rochester, New York. Ten, more than 10,000 women and men and children, and I've seen video footage of this, more than 10,000 went to visit her grave, and that's the photo in the book. They put their I voted stickers, they put thank you cards, they put flowers there, and they were thanking the women who fought all their lives to give modern women the vote, um, a voice in their own government. And it was very poignant. Uh, and, of course, it becomes even more poignant when you realize that some of their aspirations for that election were not going to be realized. But it, it doesn't take away from the idea that this kind of sacrifice, which, which I detail in the book, and which comes to a crashing climax in those six weeks in Tennessee, um, are being remembered today. That importance of that fight um, is still rev- very resonant, and I think can teach us so much about not only where we came from, but where we need to go. Uh, just uh, finally, I'd, I I want to have you re- uh, talk a little bit about one of the dedications uh, of the book, In Memory of My Parents, You Say, who took their little girl into the voting booth, let her pull the magic curtain, and taught me to treasure my right to vote. Yeah, that was that. That's uh, a heartfelt dedication because my parents did do that, and I think a lot of children have that memory um, of taking uh, me into the voting booth with them, and it was the old-fashioned kind, you know, with the big lever that would open and close the curtain and would also register your vote, and there would be the levers. It wasn't these touchscreen things. It was much more tac- tactile, and they would take me in, and they would push the levers that they wanted for the candidates and for the um, whatever referenda was on the ballot, and then they'd let me, with a little bit of assistance, because I think it was too heavy for me to do alone, they'd let me pull that lever and it would open up the curtains in very dramatic fashion. And this, to me, was the sense of 
both theater and importance. This was, you know, the right of citizenship. And it was what I did not question at the time was that, gosh, you know, two generations before, I couldn't have voted. My mother couldn't have voted. How did this happen? How I never thought that my vote was controversial, that my ability as a young, even as a girl, that my mother's vote was controversial, that my vote had once been controversial. And so when I realized that, that that's the beginning of my consciousness about voting, and it never occurred to me that this could ever be controversial. And then we see in 1920, which is around the time my parents were born, how controversial it was. And that was really startling to me. And then when my children were young, uh, my husband and I took them into the voting booth. Uh, Of course, the voting machines had changed a little bit, and the curtains are not quite as dramatic. Um, But it was that sense that citizenship is precious, and it has to be uh, the idea of a vote is precious, and we have to protect it. And today, our job is to protect the vote for all citizens, Uh, not just women, all citizens. Well, we're out of time. A fascinating book. It's a pulse pounder, and it's a history that a lot of us don't know. It's the that final push uh, to win the vote to the passage of the 19th Amendment. The title is The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. The author is Elaine Weiss, um, and it's out now, well worth the read. And uh, the website is ElaineWeiss.com. Elaine Weiss, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. A great pleasure to be with you. And thank you for listening to Access Utah Today. Our regular Wednesday feature is next, Beehive Archive. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. People living in Utah have been managing water to support agriculture for over a thousand years. Using tools and techniques perfected by their ancestors, these ancient farmers manipulated water and adapted to their dry environment in order to thrive. Learn more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah history. Water and how to control it is an age-old consideration for the people of Utah. Over a thousand years ago, Utah's earliest agriculturalists were the Fremont and ancestral Puebloan peoples. Like modern farmers, they faced the problem of how to use Utah's scarce fresh water to maximize their crops. Their strategies were different, but both groups survived and thrived in Utah's arid landscape by adapting themselves to the land and its water. The Fremont peoples flourished in Utah, north and west of the Colorado River, from around 1800 to 800 years ago. They supplemented their foraging with agriculture and grew the three sisters' crops, corn, beans, and squash. Fremont peoples did manage water sources, but their farming motto seems to have been, work smarter, not harder. Instead of building elaborate canal systems, They exploited natural landforms, such as slopes, drainages, and small streams to transport water to their fields. They also placed their gardens near seeps and in creek bottoms. Archaeological evidence shows that the Fremont also constructed irrigation ditches to water their crops. Although labor-intensive, these ditch systems led to a significant increase in crop production, ultimately allowing the Fremont to thrive in inhospitable landscapes. 
Ancestral Puebloans lived in southeast Utah on the Colorado Plateau from approximately 1400 to 700 years ago. The region had a notoriously variable climate during this period, making access to and control of water essential to survival. Ancestral Puebloans often built their towns around a spring or cistern. Archaeologists have also found evidence of earthen dams and pond sediments and reservoirs where farmers caught and stored rainwater and snowmelt. These structures demonstrate deliberate and successful manipulation of water in prehistory. As the climate became slightly cooler and less dry near the end of the 13th century, the Fremont returned to hunting and gathering, as their ancestors had done for millennia. In Utah's Four Corners area, many ancestral Puebloans chose to emigrate south to continue raising crops in Pueblos that still exist today in New Mexico and Arizona. This episode of the Beehive Archive was contributed by the Utah State Historic Preservation Office. Find sources and past episodes at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. Pose is a show all about the glamorous, bold, and very queer ballroom culture of the late 80s and early 90s. It is also a history lesson. The younger generation now would contact me in my inboxes and tell me, wow, I didn't know that the AIDS epidemic was as serious as it was. MJ Rodriguez on Pose and Perseverance. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Saturdays at 1 on UPR.